Welcome to Investing by the Books by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmgren, and with me in the studio is, as usual, my colleague, Niklas Sävås. Hello, hello. Nice to have you here, and nice to get the second podcast going. Today, we are thrilled to talk with Jake Taylor, known from podcasts uh, his own, Five Good Questions and The Highcast, and he's also one of the three in Value After Hours. You've listened to a lot of those, right? Yeah, I've, I've listened to, uh, I mean, maybe too many. Um, becoming a father leads to a lot of walks. And uh, I think I probably listened to maybe 50 podcasts with Jake before. And uh, I think he's a great guy. And uh, I look forward to, to talk to him so much. And Jake is also CEO of Farnham Street Investments and author of The Rebel Allocator, a book we will talk more about in uh, this episode. What, uh, what were your thoughts on the book? I think this is a great book for for beginners who want to understand uh, business and investing and specifically then of course capital allocation. And um, one thing that's really good with the book is that it's it's written in a really easy format for for people to to take in. It's a novel which is very very rare in the in the investing sphere. Yeah, the topic might seem boring but it's really easy to pick up this book and learn a great deal about it and it's really something that is yeah capital allocation is one of them of management's most important jobs um from the framework of red eye quality rating what will the episode cover so uh, as you all know we have the the um, sec- sections people business and financials and uh, this one is naturally people because it's uh, i mean it's people who allocate the capital for for a business and uh, in our in our people section, we uh, we rate uh, management and owners, and also the the corporate culture of the business. Yeah, and we will also try to cover a lot of other topics in this show, not only capital allocation, because Jake is he has many interesting interests and approaches when he is investing and also in life. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, we. We'll recommend the book for everyone, of course. Uh, the Rebel Allocator can be found on, on Amazon, for example, where you can read the Kindle, listen to the book, or you can order it physically. And if you want to follow Jake, which we strongly advise you to do, on Twitter, his handle is at FarnamJake1. And you can also, of course, listen to his podcasts. And um, any other thoughts before we get going? No, let's start. Let's go. Here comes the interview with Jake Taylor. So we're really, really happy to have Jake Taylor on board this week. Um, Jake, we we interviewed you in 2018 for Investing by the Books. Um, we all actually got an, an early copy of the book and we discussed uh, how the book came about. And of course, we discussed a lot about capital allocation as the book focuses on capital allocation with the, the name The Rebel Allocator. And we also discussed uh, that you had a goal of having an impact on decision makers. Um, we know that you got contacted by, by Charlie Munger after releasing the book, and I, I guess you sent him a copy. Um, can you tell us a little bit, bit about that, that story and, and also what has happened since? Sure. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on, by the way, guys. Um, so I did send a copy um, just more as a thank you because he was so influential in, in helping me to understand a lot of things. And 
any of the smart things that are in that book are other people's thoughts. So um, <clears throat> I sent it to quite a few people who were influential to me. But with Charlie, um, you know, he is kind of a special place uh, because he his rationality just permeates throughout uh, really all all really intelligent thought. And so he's it's really um, could be a little bit of an ode to him. And uh, I think he recognized that when he read it. Um, in fact, he, he said at one point, he said, well, of course I like the book. It was about me. <laughs> so, um, but to go to the, he, he ended up calling me at my office and discussing the book. And, um, you know, it was just that very, very surreal half hour phone call with you, with your hero that you could have, you know, when I woke up that morning, I had no idea that that was on the agenda for that day. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was, uh, as, as amazing as you can imagine. And uh, one of the things that he really wanted to impress upon me was that um, he thought it would make a good movie. And it, I was, it's a little not surprising that that came up because actually I, I use screenplay writing as a crutch for my lack of storytelling ability. Um, so I read a few books on screenplay writing before I wrote the book uh, so that I could just have the right pacing and, um, understand better about like setting up scenes and having emotional arcs for characters, things like that. So uh, it was really helpful to, to make the book much easier to write, knowing that I had this sort of template to work from. Um, so the fact that he saw a movie, you know, kind of playing out in his head while he read it, uh, you know, it kind of made sense to me. Like that's actually what I was going for. <laughs> so uh, yeah, he encouraged me to get it made into a movie and uh, I've actually teamed up with a, a guy who's a, a screenplay writer um, and he's, He's working on it as we speak. Um, it's 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 a labor of love, I think, for both of us at this point. He likes the material. I don't think I don't think either one of us think it, it's going to go too far. Like I just understand the base rates on <laughs> how likely you are to actually get anything. One to even get like optioned. Two to get gr a green light. Three to actually get made. Four to ever get released. Um, I mean, those are all staggering odds on their own. So you add them all together, and you know, I don't have delusions that it's going anywhere but it's kind of a fun side project to to just have in the hopper maybe we can group together the value investor community to fund it <laughs> well wait, what's left of us yeah <laughs> i definitely hope that there will be a movie one day uh can you tell us a little bit how like if any experience you had since the book came out and what kind of feedback you have received from from the public also you know, my favorite feedback is actually from small business people who uh, read the book and like were really said how much it helped them to think about their business and how they can improve what they're doing. Um, that, you know, is a lot of the the point of it. Um, and the other thing, too, is like, actually, I've, I've had a lot of people say that they uh, this is like this is the first finance related or you know business book that they felt like that they could give to their wife to read and like sh she would be interested in it still um and that like so it's sort of passing the wife test which is is kind of you know that's i guess that's one niche to fill um and then a lot of people like that also makes me feel good is like the giving it like they want to give it to their kids and that that's important to me as well because like part of the book was to to teach business people about cap allocation and give them a framework and actually more than anything give them a little bit of confidence to follow their own intuition um, rather than just doing what everyone else is doing. Um, and, and I like the idea that 
you know, if everyone is sort of making their own idiosyncratic judgments, we have a much more robust system as opposed to if it's everyone's lemmings and they're just following each other. Uh, you, you know, that's the kind of that adds a lot of fragility to the system when you when you have everyone just copying each other. So, um, but yeah, so like half of it was teaching cap allocation, but the other half was actually just a having a little bit deeper and more visceral appreciation for capitalism in general and all the good things that it's brought to to humanity. Uh, and I think that 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 tone, which I, I tried not to be too ham too heavy handed with it, um, but I think that tone, you know, kind of seeps into the book and hopefully. Um, maybe some younger people who might be predisposed to less capitalism, less liberty, um, might at least like question, you know, hey, what's the right way for humans to organize their their economic behaviors? That's really a good good cause for the book. Um, I think you really achieved that. Uh, if we get into a bit of the concept of capital allocation, you said uh, previously that. You wanted to write this book also because you didn't find any anything on it like what you wanted, so you had to write it yourself. Um, what would you say is the biggest like misconception about capital allocation as a concept? Uh, you know, I think the the biggest mistake you see is probably to go back to what I said before that that lack of confidence, and it's not like any of the things that are in the book are that difficult to figure out. Um, they're all very logical and straightforward. It's just a matter of, do you have the the psychological wherewithal, the the guts, to to trust yourself in your own decisions and your own measurements of what's the next best use of a dollar inside of your business, um, and especially in a public domain where there are a lot of institutional imperatives that can, um, and, and quite quite logically actually for the CEO or whoever is making the decision, um, you know, they're just like in any investing, it, it kind of lends itself to being wrong in a crowd as opposed to standing out on your own and being wrong. That's like the, you know, kind of the death sentence. And, and in fact, we're, we're all wired to, to avoid those kind of situations, right? Like when there, anytime there's uncertainty, you want to, we're wired to hang out in the crowd because that increased our survival odds. Um, but, that's not a good, that's a, that's a mismatch from our evolution to our current environment. And, um, to be able to think for yourself when everyone else is kind of just going with the flow or, or, or even worse, like losing their minds around you, um, you know, that that's a huge advantage. And, um, I think it's just like in investing in any kind of way, it's the, you know, once you're over a 110 or 120 IQ, the rest of it is all emotional uh, control. It's all psychological understanding yourself, um, doing the things to keep yourself in the right headspace to make the good decisions. Um, and so hopefully the book would help to um, give that confidence to somebody to trust their gut and or trust their own analysis and, and make their own decisions. And then naturally, I mean, for us as investors, we need to assess if uh, if a CEO or or, or or manager is good at capital allocation, um, how do you assess it? Because I mean, you have you have many different. I mean, for for example, in in, in Red Eye, we focus on smaller technology and life science businesses, and I mean they don't have too many options other than than investing in their in the business itself, and of course then. Then you then then you need to to look at the return on invested capital and so on. But 
how would how would you uh, how would you assess it? That's right. I mean, most of the most of the time, the money in any business is put back into that same business, and you know, return on capital will tell you, um, you know, how much what the economics of that industry and their competitive position what that will bear. Um, now, <clears throat> that's typically the best use of money because theoretically, that should be what your management team knows the best, right? Like that's within their circle of competence. Understanding if I lay out a dollar into my existing business, I will expect to get back, you know, more than one dollar, hopefully. Uh, however, we do see that um, that very suboptimal decisions are made in that space, and people keep plowing into a, you know, somewhere where the returns on capital have diminished uh, pretty markedly. And in that instance, uh, you know, shareholders and capitalism and and everyone actually would be better off if that money or those resources were redeployed somewhere else. Um, and that can then go into perhaps M and A, um, perhaps a dividend. They can, then the owners can decide what they want to do with it. Perhaps share buybacks, depending upon the the price. Um, so there's there's different levers to pull, or or like maybe developing a new line of business that's uh, you know maybe somewhat adjacent, or maybe even a little not adjacent. But um, you know you have this toolkit in front of you of choices, and theoretically you should be picking the one that has the best expected outcome um, and for all parties involved too, right? It's like, it's not just the best outcome for the CEO, uh, which may be just empire building, right? And plowing money back into your business. It's not just the best outcome for shareholders, uh, which would be often kind of short-sighted where like buybacks at any price, right? Where money is, when money leaves out of the business at uh, in a buyback, at an at when price is well above intrinsic value, the departing shareholders are walking out with more than their fair share of the value of the business at that point. So, um, you know, now we're we're privileging one class of shareholder kind of against another at that point. Um, and it's not just employees. Um, <clears throat> so, and in that instance, you know, think about like maybe Japan and how they their corporate culture is such that they protect employees over at, to the expense of every single other stakeholder. Um, <clears throat> and it's not just, uh, you know, the communities that you do business in, um, you know, those, they, you, sh- you should be not under investing in your business in such a way that creates negative externalities and makes it other people's problems. Um, or, uh, you know, your regulators. So if you're, if you're shortchanging your, compliance and, you know, kind of regulatory expectations, uh, you know, that's not good either. So in order to have a truly sustainable business that's performing good capital allocation, you have to take into account every single stakeholder 360 uh, and and develop win-win relationships with all of those stakeholders. And that's that's the only way to truly have a sustainable enterprise. It seems like Charlie Munger is is correct again with saying you should always focus on the incentives and i mean i guess that's the main main um reason why why capital allocation is suboptimal uh yeah i mean it's um i would say incentives and then also that's a corollary to that is that um time frames can be much different um so if let's say that you're you know that i think the average tenure of an S&P 500 CEO is something like four and a half years. Well, if I want to get paid as that CEO and all my incentives are lined up to where 
we need to have a short-term wins right now. I'm going to sacrifice the future for today. Uh, that's just how the incentives are driving things. Um, and so it's, it's not, they're not, they're not malevolent. They're not stupid. Um, they understand exactly what's happening, but they also understand that if for them to protect their family, to get paid, like they have to make this sort of suboptimal for the long-term decision. Um, and it's just a, it's an unfortunate outgrowth, I think, and, and a, a little bit of a poor reflection on capitalism. But it, my argument would be that that's, it's not actually very good capitalism, capitalism that's being executed then. Um, and I, I, I somewhat blame the disintermediation of owners from management. So institutional ownership, um, you know, index funds, uh, these are, they own huge chunks of these companies. And if they wanted to, they could force changes that were more uh, to create longer term thinking. Um, and I don't know if it's an incentive problem there where they just have no incentive to really drive that kind of change. Uh, but uh, I don't want to say that capitalism is broken. I, I do want to say that uh, there are some we're suboptimal in some ways of how we're, we're allowing capitalism to kind of evolve. And I think uh, we could definitely do some things to clean it up from a, from a, a, a cultural and a societal, and then on a bigger scale, like from a, from a species standpoint. But from, from reading the book, um, it seems like you're, you're quite pessimistic of having a, a change. Um, <laughs> was that more or less, I mean, that, that you are going to have a change with the book or or that it will really take a lot of time before this this changes in the system as a whole? Uh, I guess it depends on how I feel when I woke up that day, how pessimistic I am or not <laughs> about it. <laughs> but I mean, I think that there... <clears throat> I'm pessimistic that it, it will change overnight. I think this is just like... Um, I think it was Max Planck who observed that uh, science progresses one death at a time. And I think this could be the same thing where, um, you know, we just need a new, probably a new generation of more enlightened, more holistic thinking, uh, but still recognizing the good that capitalism does. Um, and I think, you know, those, those people, like, <clears throat> I love the idea that if I, you know, this book, if it, if someone read it when they were 20 and then they were in the CEO seat at 45 or 50 or whatever it was. Um, and they, they thought back to that and like, Oh, you know what? That's how I, I'm, I kind of want to do things. Um, that little pebble that I threw into the, into the ocean that made a little ripple would have been, was totally worth it for me at that point. Even if I never know, I can never measure it. Um, but maybe there's a chance that it could still help. Yeah, definitely. We, we hope that, but when we get into the compensation, um, we at Red Eye, we have a quality rating that basically derives the cost of capital when we analyze companies. Uh, and one part is people, that is like half of the rating, uh, about 50 questions. And one part of that is capital allocation, uh, which has uh, six uh, sub-questions. And one of them is that we look at um, like the long-term incentives and how we encourage uh, the leaders. And we have a five-year uh, horizon that we want the companies to have. What, what are your thoughts on on like we talked a little bit about it here like on the type of incentives like which ones do you think are most efficient you talked in the book about net promoter score uh roic and and so on yeah i think um i don't know if i have better answers for that i think actually like sort of each business probably needs to be 
measured based on the characteristics of that business. Um, so for instance, uh, you know, with Geico, Buffett devised a, a comp plan that, that trickled down from the CEO all the way down to like the very, you know, the, the agent who's on the phone with you, um, if you call in, um, that was based on, uh, basically like policies that people paid policies. Um, and, you know, he found like what's sort of that one key metric that it will will tend to drive. Um, and I think there's a good book on on some of that design, which is by Andy Grove, which is High Output Management. Um, that it it has a lot of good ideas on how to design incentives. Um, <clears throat> if there was a book that I hope I wish someone would write, and it's not for lack of I think people wanting to write it. I think it's that we literally don't have the data or the information, but it would be. Uh, a compilation of all of the comp plans that Buffett has ever designed. Cause I think he's actually secretly a genius when it comes to this and it like goes unnoticed. Um, I would love to be able to see all the different comp plans that he's crafted over the years for different uh, subsidiaries. Um, one other thing to talk about probably at this point would be what I like to do to assess cap allocation for a potential investment is practice what I would call like cash flow statement empathy. And what it is is like I go back and I look through the cash flow statements in particular over time, and I see, I try to put myself into the decision maker's head, into their shoes. What decisions did they make? Like, what were you know? What was the valuation when they were doing buybacks? What was the like? Where did they reinvest, and what kind of returns were they getting from that over time? And you know, did they learn for any lessons from that? Um, I think you can. The cash flow statement will tell you an entire story about a business if you if you let it uh, if you let it whisper into your ear, uh, and so I I try to imagine that I was them and I was trying to make that decision and and I have the benefit of hindsight of knowing kind of what ended up happening right like so they're making decisions in real time and then I know already what what the outcome was but I try to put myself into their shoes and with the information that they had, were they making the right decisions? And I've, I found that to be uh, how I've recognized some of the best cap allocators is through that exercise. Interesting. That really sounds like a good approach. But that also requires that it's the same capital allocator staying in the business and that is not changing. Like how, how do you assess That's that? Fair. Who is really responsible for the capital allocation? It's not always that easy to, to know, I guess. <clears throat> No, that's right. And I, I'm, I tend to be uh, more drawn than towards uh, either founder-led or more um, large, large skin in the game owners of of the business who are making the decisions. Uh, oftentimes, you sacrifice uh, some control on your end, right? Like they tend to have more control over the whole situation. But <clears throat> if I'm going to go into business with someone, which is how I, I view, you know, buying even partial ownership of a, of a share of a company. Um, I want my partner and the one who's making the decisions to ha have a lot of skin in the game. And I want my economic interest tied with theirs as much as I can, as opposed to more of a, a manager who is going to get kind of get paid regardless, uh, you know, if they hit their little short-term goals. So <clears throat> That's just more fits more with my style. Yeah, I totally agree. And that also comes back to incentives, I guess. Mm -hmm. If we look a bit on the M&A side, which is another 
like way to grow and something you talked about in the book and were quite quite skeptic about what would you say like we have many good examples of M&A stories that are very successful and and Buffett has built one uh, what's your preference there for organic and M&A uh, I don't. I don't necessarily have a preference between organic versus M and A. I think both strategies can can work beautifully depending upon uh, the management who's executing them. I would say that the base rates do not support the average M and A as being very accretive to the acquirer. Uh, most of the time, they end up overpaying. Uh, they talk themselves into why this is a good price. They especially do that in times of where. Um, markets are frothier or at least expectations seem to be higher. Um, and granted, like, you know, it's during boon times, everyone kind of starts drawing lines, you know, through the dots and straight up and it keeps going up and to the right. So it seems like it makes sense. Uh, but you know, the mean reversion, unfortunately is still, well, it hasn't been much in the last decade, but (laughs) historically mean reversion has mattered. Uh, and I think it will matter again someday. Probably uh, at but, some point. Yeah. And the other problem too is you get sometimes you'll get a, an empire builder CEO or management team who um either number of employees or revenue is their, you know, what they want to brag about. And it has nothing to do with profitability and or, you know, the correct allocation of capital at all. And so they will overpay for their ego, really, at the end of the day. Um and that you don't really want to be the one who is co-signing the check for a CEO who wants to build their ego. No, that's true. So capital allocation is indeed very, very important. And you have not only written a book and doing a lot of podcasts, you also, you're also CEO of Farnham Street Investments. And in there you have 35% at the moment at least allocated to what you call capital allocators. Why, why is it not more than 35%? <clears throat> That's a good question. I, I probably don't have a good answer. Um, part of that a little bit is uh, is it's there is no strategy that is not informed by the price as well. And the price gives the implied odds of success. And I just don't like overpaying for things. Um, <clears throat> and so I have a whole list of other people who I'd be very happy to have as allocating capital within my companies in my empire that I'm building that I consider my portfolio. Uh, However, just the price doesn't seem right for for me. Um, And maybe that's a mistake. Uh, And the other part of it too, is like, what else is available in the other things that, that I'm doing that makes sense to me. So, you know, another part of the portfolio is just in basically the cheapest assets that I can find on planet earth. And, um, and that really is not anything more complicated than a bet on reversion to the mean. Um, like I said, I, I don't think it's completely suspended. Uh, I could be wrong, but um, <clears throat> and then I have some other, you know, little, you know, kind of hedges and and special situations uh, that that I also make sense to me that I like investing in. So it's all a matter of what's available. But I do consider that that capital allocator. Um, strategy as sort of a base load of carrying a lot of the the work of the portfolios that I design. Um, and I, I'm very comfortable with that strategy, uh, mostly because I, I consider it to be very anti-fragile. So the worst that the world gets, um, I guess within reason, um, the 
more opportunities that my cap allocators are going to have to do smart things with their resources, um, the, the, the more likely they're, they're going to perform good M&A or share buybacks um, or um, <clears throat> they just, they just opens up the toolkit for them when prices are lower uh, and, or when panic is in the streets like that, they all of a sudden their opportunity sets open up. And now I know that they're going to be able to compound at a much higher rate off of a lower base. Uh, and so I, you know, it, it makes it a little bit easier to sleep at night knowing that there's like really smart people who have a lot of their money in this themselves and all the incentive in the world to, to get it right. And they're waking up every morning working for me to figure out how to do a better job than they did yesterday. Uh, and and the worse the world gets, uh, and they all tend to be run more conservatively, the ones who I pick. So I know that they have resources on the sidelines ready to go when when the opportunities do present themselves. And uh, that just makes it a little bit easier for me to sleep at night. Um, <clears throat> one of the things I've, I've actually kind of struggled with a little bit is you hear a lot of people, Buffett especially, talk about how you know, he's, he's kind of always been more of a, a picking the horse than the jockey, right? Like don't pick a business so good that even an idiot could run it. Cause maybe one day an idiot will be running it. And I, I do agree with that. And it sounds right. However, I've, I've been wondering if, if maybe like technology and the pace of change, uh, and the potential obsolescence of businesses might be running at a faster pace than, at previous times, uh, maybe historically, in which case then that horse may be completely uh, broken down shorter than what you would imagine, right? Like, so <clears throat> I think this might be particularly true in the like CPG, consumer packaged goods world, where for a long time, all of those companies, the, the main ones, they earned really excessive returns on equity, returns on capital. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that you know, there were three channels on TV. And so if you could afford to be the one who was showing your Coca-Cola ads or your Procter and Gamble ads every day, uh, and you had the scale to buy that kind of national programming, um, everybody knew your name and they wanted you and they're willing to pay more for your product, right? Um, now that the, the, it's been such a fracture of attention and distribution through the internet and social media, um, and now you've get direct to consumer type of products, you know, like a Dollar Shave Club instead of Gillette, where uh, I just I'm not sure that that like 30 year, you know, this business is going to kick ass for the next 30 years, and I'm that's what I'm making the bet on. I'm not sure that that's as good a bet as it used to be maybe 20 years ago. Um, which in which case then I kind of like the idea of betting on some entrepreneurial human energy. Uh, who will figure out how to fix the problems along the way, as opposed to the economics of this business are so unassailable that um, they're going to carry the day. Um, I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a good question. After after talking to Sean Eddings last week, I think I think we got influenced a bit on, on that. And it's also interesting, I think, on, I mean, if you think about Berkshire, they have they have bought, of course, a lot of great businesses, but they have also partnered up with a lot of like fanatics, fanatic CEOs, and I think some of them are mentioned by by um, the intelligent fanatics. I mean, the three G partners, for example, is one. Um, Tom Murphy, I guess, should definitely put in that bucket. And so, yeah, I, I think you have a good point. I think, yeah, yeah, it's really an interesting observation, and it's a 
it's a very big contrast compared to the cheapest things you can find on earth. That's for sure. Well, that's where uh, maybe sometimes I'm, I get in my own way because a lot of times, I mean, for some of these businesses, let's take like a, a constellation, uh, you know, the software roll up. It's always looked expensive to me. And yet it's, it's been probably fairly priced. I mean, I've been wrong to view it as so expensive. Um, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm conflating two strategies too much with <laughs> looking for the cheapest things. And then also, you know, having this, this kind of anti-fragile cap allocator overlay, but um, there are times where you get a cap allocator at just a, such an insane cheap price. It doesn't happen often, but when it does like that is the, that's, that's the time where I feel very, very good about uh, going pretty deep into it. It's quite interesting with, with Constellation Software. We actually ha actually have a small, similar business in, in Sweden called VTech Software, which are, they are building something similar. And I, I was thinking a bit when we discussed M&A, I mean, some businesses are really built to make M&A. That's what they're, what they're built for. And I think if you would look at the base rates for such businesses, I think that would be a completely different story, actually, because I think we have at least 10 good examples in, in Sweden of, of really M&A-driven um, businesses who have been, I mean, home runs. What do you think about that, Jake? Oh, I think it could certainly be done, especially if they are targeting businesses that do not have their own runways to be redeploying capital at attractive rates. Uh, and that that money then needs to go somewhere more productive and um, it can't go back into that same software company maybe where it's just uh, you're just plowing money probably into customer acquisition costs that are, will never pay themselves back. Um, that, that money should be redeployed then in which case maybe buying the next one that is sort of at its, at its limit of ability to redeploy. Um, and you could just keep rolling those up into bigger and bigger cash flows. I mean, it makes sense to me. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, they, they, I think many of them get, get other opportunities. They have, I mean, suddenly they have a huge war chest and they can, they can conduct maybe smaller M&A activities on their own. So you, you get like branches, it's like branches of a tree. Right. Yeah, and when we get into this whole investment philosophy discussion, it's I remember you said in another podcast that you kind of stumbled upon the value club like when you met Warren Buffett for lunch and now you kind of had a commitment bias maybe that you've been like started in this and then you keep going and it's hard to change. Is that correct? Uh, well, I would say the real mistake probably was not recognizing that early. So I... 2007 was when I uh, had that fateful lunch with with Warren Buffett, and that also happened to coincide with like a absolute amazing run for value. Um, like like 2000 to 2007 was a historically just off the charts value run, and so here I am coming into value investing. Like, oh, this guy Buffett, he makes a lot of sense to me, right? And it's also, I'm basically like a momentum version of a, of a value guy at that point, right? I'm late to the party. I think I've figured something out, but like everyone else had already figured it out, you know? <laughs> so to then have the next, uh, it hasn't been all bad, but like 
relatively speaking, the, the next 12 years after that, um, value has been just getting kicked in the teeth for the most part as a, for, as an academic measurement of, of the strategy. Um, and like, yeah, that, that's probably what you should have expected. Like you came in at the top of interest in value, right? Like for it to start working again, everyone has to throw it in the garbage and hate it. Um, so, um, now whether it's just my stubbornness or I, I actually think it is a more of an ingrained thing where it just, it either makes sense to you or it doesn't. Um, and so to, to practice it any other way to me, the, the art of investing, um, just getting more than I pay for, which is just something that I I've done in my entire life, even before I knew that you could do it in the public market and call that value investing. Um, it just always made sense to me. So I, I don't think you, I don't think you could ring it out of me at this point. I'll, I'll die a value investor. Uh, and, <laughs> and that's, that's okay. And, but it just means you're going to have to suffer through time periods where, where it doesn't work. Uh, and you should especially expect those to be when it has been working and everyone. The more that everyone thinks you're a genius, the more likely you are about to to, to trip and fall. So, <laughs> yeah, it always depends how you define it as well. There's many discussions about that. What is really value? True. Uh, but when we come into the like the biases, this is a bit uh, related to that. What what I would you many. say? Yeah, what would you say are your most common biases when you invest, in, and how do you deal with that, like practically? Yeah, I was thinking about this. Um, it's a good question because it's uh, very self-reflective. And if, you, if you're not answering that, then you probably really are still suffering from those same biases, right? Um, but I think one that's probably been the most pernicious for me is that my wiring is such that I, um, I have a predisposition against leverage. And I... Uh, <clears throat> It's how I've run my own life always, just with a very small balance sheet. Um, you know, I don't, I haven't wanted to, I've always no debt basically. And um, I like to see that same thing in my, my cap allocators just because I feel like it gives them more optionality uh, and less, it's always about taking zero off the table, right? And so having leverage introduces more zeros potentially. Okay, great argument, right? Like theoretically makes sense. However, um, what if, I mean, you could, you can make a very strong argument that, that very, very, very cheap debt, long dated fixed is almost an asset and not a liability. Um, and you know, I look at Berkshire borrowing yen at literally 0.000% yield for 30 years. And that is like, that's just not a liability, right? So should you be counting that as debt really? I don't know. Like I, I think it's that obviously probably has a, a negative yield to it. So is is negative yielding debt an asset or a liability? Well, I guess it just depends on a little bit on the timing of when the cash flows are due and will you have the cash to to pay it off. But um so I think I've often been not nu- nuanced enough in my in my assessment of just purely leverage or not. Um and so <clears throat> I've started, here's how I've tried to solve that problem. Aside one from like digging into the the financials to see like what does this debt actually look like, right? Like the just not just a balance sheet figure that says this much due. It's like, well, okay, when is it due and how much are they paying to keep it? Um, but over and above that, I've started keeping track of 
when I reject a company because of quote unquote, too much leverage, I will then keep track of how that goes on to perform. And I've started coding all of the reasons why I reject something as a way of assessing my filters to see, are these filters helping or hurting me actually? I don't have enough data yet to tell you with any definitive precision whether that is working or not, um, which, which one's been helping me versus hurting me. But someday, hopefully not too long, I will have a big enough data set to tell you that, yeah, I was probably overly cautious with debt or I was, um, <clears throat> I, there, or I was not assessing tail risk enough um, or a million other reasons why you would reject a particular idea. Uh, maybe I'm throwing too many things into the too hard pile, which means like I'm not working hard enough to really like dig through things and find the the gems from the garbage. Um, I won't. I can't tell you what the answers to those things are yet, but I am in the process of solving that and figuring out like how are my re my rejection filters helping or hurting me. That's very interesting. Would be interesting to hear uh, how that goes. Do you have like a, how do you do that practically? Like, do you have a journal where you write everything up or is it Excel or? Uh, yeah. So I'm actually, <laughs> I wasn't really planning on talking about this, but I'm, I'm incubating a little startup that has, that is working on this problem and, and several other problems when it comes to getting the biases out of your decision-making in the investment context. And really it's just all the things that I would want built for myself. So it's it's kind of a at this point it's a proprietary software that I've been using for about a year, but maybe someday like the team wants to make it a public thing and um we might I don't know, we'll see see how that goes, but um I've been using it now for about a year and maybe a little bit more, kind of a rudimentary version of it, but uh it's it's a game changer. Uh just the to to have the ability to see the decisions that you were making in real time and then go back and read what you actually, you know, put in there. And you're like, is that really what I thought at that time? Oh my God, what, a, how, how dumb can I be? Uh, but you know, it's you because I mean, you're the one who put it in there. Um, and, and then to see all your decisions, how those have played out and to see, you know, your rejection filters and how that's playing out. Um, it's all this, all this decision-making data that you that exists and we all know what it is, but we don't really track it because it's kind of a pain in the ass to track it. Um, <clears throat> but this software makes it much easier to keep track of all that stuff, which then hopefully leads to closing that feedback loop, which gives the intuition a chance to grow. Yeah, that sounds really useful. I would love to, to have my hands on that tool. Maybe we can be beta testers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, hopefully, maybe someday soon, we'll it'll be ready for that type of uh, outside exposure. Unless you sell it to some brokerage firm or something. Yeah, I don't know. I'm. <laughs> I think uh, that kind of baby. I'd rather, I'd rather do push that into a much farther interesting places to go with it. Because, I mean, you guys kind of know I'm, I'm a little bit of a mad scientist when it comes to the decision making space. Like I'm, I'm always looking for crazy ways to to kind of push the envelope on that and see how I can improve things like health wise, uh, you know, environmental design, um, information, uh, diets and things like that. Like, I think there's, I think there's tremendous opportunity to give, give brains the chance to make the best decisions, uh, over and above 
what we do right now. And I think we're, we're pretty sloppy about it for the most part. Um, but someday I think we'll, we'll probably look back at today and say like, wow, that was really the dark ages of decision-making. Like we didn't know anything like, and yet there was so much stuff we could have been doing better. So a, a good uh, segue from that is, um, is um, discussing the multidisciplinary approach where, um, I mean, we know that you're a, a, a disciple of that. And um, I guess you've been influenced by Charlie Munger as, as we have as well. Uh, maybe you sure. can start with just explaining that approach, why it's beneficial and, and how you use it. Sure. I, I think for me, it's, <clears throat> there are certain like capital T truths and, you know, figuring those out is actually quite difficult. And a lot of the problem is that you just don't have a big enough data set to say whether something is actually true or not and whether that it will persist to be true. Right. So there's this great book by, uh, uh, it's called, uh, the half-life of facts. And it, I think Sam Altman is the author, if I remember right. I might be having that wrong. Sorry, sorry, Sam. Uh, <laughs> the uh, I know it's Sam is his first name. Uh, so, but this idea of the half life of facts is that if you like, how tall is Mount Everest? Uh, like something like thirty two thousand something feet, I, I believe. Well, and that's actually not true because every single day it's a mixture of. T plate tectonics pushing it up just a little bit and then wind erosion eroding the top of the mountain off. And so that number is actually changing all the time, right? The actual true height of Everest. Well, <clears throat> okay. Like now you go to something like physics where, you know, gravity is probably a thing that is, is true and is going to be true for, for at least our lifetimes. Right. Um, although, however, like we've seen that, you know, it went from Newtonian physics to, to, you know, Einstein and, and relativity. And like, we have a complete shaking up of the apple cart and all of a sudden, all these things that we thought were true, all these facts, they actually, these facts decay and they decay as a, as a base at a, a kind of a known rate, depending upon the particular uh, domain that they live in. So something like Mount Everest is that fact is decaying constantly because it's it's always changing. Whereas physics seems to be decaying every maybe three or four hundred years. We we change it. Um, so in in our world where we're trying to assess the bigger world and figure out you know how do businesses work, um, who's going to make money, how are we going to be benefit from that. We need to find these big capital T truths that may li live for a long time. And so <clears throat> there are three primary buckets that I go looking for capital T truths. And that are that's physics, so just the natural kind of world, you know, the the universe, um mathematics falls under that. And then biology, like so with physics you have like let's call it 13.8 billion years of of uh, data being collected uh, for our known universe. With in the biology world, we have about 3.8 billion years of of data that's been collected, uh, and then sort of like human history, and let's call that you know maybe one to three million of our current iteration of what we look like, and and maybe 10,000 years ish of recorded history. So those are reasonably big data sets from which to draw inference. And then what we can do then is take all these models that emerge from that, that we believe 
represent some capital T truth. And we look for applications of those models in our more everyday shifting world of business and investing. And so in, in the value and after hours segments that I do, I try to take these big capital T truth ideas from other domains and then look for a an, an analog in the business or investing world. And I'm not always successful. Uh, sometimes I, I, I try and I, I, you know, I, I push it too far and probably doesn't really apply that much, but maybe if you squinted hard enough, it would look like it fit. Um, but at the end of the day, it's more about trying to stretch your mind into thinking about different ways of approaching problems and having this like wide tool set. And really, um, I think the multidisciplinary approach is super helpful in that it allows you to, to cut through uh, a lot of the noise pretty quickly. And, you know, it's like having a really sharp saw. Like, so if you spend all your time sharpening the saw, when you actually, like when the wood does show up to be cut, you're pretty proficient at it. Um, So you could spend all your time just sawing on wood, which in the investment context, I would say is like reading 10Ks and 10Qs and um, doing like primary research. Or you could spend a little bit more time outside of that in learning some of these models and being multidisciplinary and really sharpening your saw so that when it does time come time to cut wood, you're really like very effective strokes through it, um, and that's that's kind of how I think about it and balancing my time of you know am I sharpening the saw today or am I going to cut some wood today? I think that was one of the best explanations I've I've ever heard on on multidisciplinary approach. Thank you, thank you for that. And we naturally go into the the segment of uh, of habits uh, with that, and um, I think you mentioned in the book that. The, the four hours of dedicated work um, mm. is are you using that for you for yourself uh, when I'm my best version of myself I am <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know with kids and and a life and all those things like it you know things things come in and I'm I I still waste prodigious amounts of time uh, and it's but oftentimes it's I don't know that it's a waste necessarily so sometimes it's you know just reading something that's probably doesn't even close to be helpful or relate. And then something clicks and it's like, Oh, actually this does help a lot. Um, but yeah, back to the four hours thing that actually I, I stole that from, uh, Gary Keller, who is, uh, the founder of Keller Williams, the real estate, uh, kind of empire. He wrote this book called the one thing. And it is, it's quite good, but I can give you the entire like punchline in like 12 seconds. Uh, but it's that if you carve out four hours per day and before you start those four hours, you ask yourself, what is the most important thing, the one thing that I could work on right now that would make everything else easier or maybe even unnecessary? What is that one thing? And then go do that one thing for four hours. And I, I it's really, it's just a, it's a focus exercise um, and, and a, and a prioritization exercise, right? So you've heard the Buffett story about how one of his pilots asked him, like, how did you get so successful? And he says, okay, well, tell me the, like, come back tomorrow with the a list of the top 25 things that are the, like, you know, that you want to work on or the most important to you. And he's like, okay. And so he writes the list and he comes back and Buffett tells him, okay, well now take everything. I, I don't remember if it was like three or five, but let's just say five, everything below five, that is your new list of avoid at all costs. 
right? Like that list is the thing. Those are the last things that you should ever be looking at so that you can really truly focus on those top three or five things that are going to really move the needle for you because they will dilute your energy. They'll dilute your, your, they'll, the, the biggest thing is actually they'll dilute the bandwidth of your subconscious, which can spend all of its time working on solving these problems for you. So if you can focus your subconscious on the top couple problems that you have, uh, you know, this is why when you're sitting in the shower, like some idea will pop into your head that'll be like, oh, that's that's the answer right there. Um, that's your subconscious surfacing it to you. And if you fed your subconscious the problem over that, you know, preceding time period and really let it focus on it as opposed to here's my top 25 problems subconscious, work on that. Like he's never gonna he or she's never gonna give you the answer, right? But if you gave it a couple things or one thing in particular and you focused on that to the exclusion of everything else, then I think um I think you're just going to be so far ahead of the competition and who are very easily distracted. And I think that's more true now than ever with social media and the distractions that we carry around in our pocket and the fact that someone is really hard now to just sit quietly. Um, Everyone's got to just like have constant input into their, into their brain through their phone. Um, It's such an advantage to be able to focus in today's day and age that, uh, I don't think you even really have to work very hard outside of if you could put in two hours a day of really dedicated focus, I think you're probably in the top one percentile at that point of of what you're going to get done that actually moves the needle. Yeah, maybe that will also like revert to the mean because now we it feels like everyone is just adding things, adding people, adding interests, and we are so busy. And I know there's a book coming out earlier this year that I haven't read yet, but it's it's about subtracting things instead and and really focusing, I would like to read that one. Yeah, I think it's huge. And um, I think, you know, there's this idea of solitude and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be alone, but it's more like not having someone else's thoughts or voice coming into your head and letting your own voice and really your subconscious work on the problems for you. Uh, and I, I, I spend a lot of time actually... Um, going on little hikes and I do a lot of walking just around my neighborhood. And I've, I don't bring podcasts a lot of the time to put into my head while I'm doing it, even though it feels good to do it. Cause you're like, Oh man, I'm multitasking. Like I'm getting, I'm moving my body. I'm getting sunshine. I'm listening to this interesting podcast. Like I'm killing it right now. Right. Um, <clears throat> but what am I, what am I excluding when I do that? And maybe that's my own really unique insight that might've popped up on that walk. Had I given myself room to breathe with that. So true, I think. It's but it's 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 difficult. I mean, it's a really really tough tough thing because I mean, it's really habit based. If you if you uh, if you start listening to to podcasts, then then um, it's hard to break out and just uh, schedule time to 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 walk and think. And I think isn't some someone wise said that? I mean, one of the the biggest fears people have is to sit quiet in a room and just think yeah blaze pascal ah, good. said yeah and it's uh, it's true yeah. yeah absolutely um also i mean to have an to have an edge um you need patience right and how do you how do you really i mean maybe it's connected to what we discussed before but how do you deal with that in in this world of of noise uh, it's a it's a thousand percent connected to that. Um, designing your environment to limit the amount of noise, um, <clears throat> controlling your 
your more base impulses. Like, I mean, going on Twitter and and doing things like it feels good. Like it's a dopamine hit. Uh, I mean, you're you're wiring your brain to want that. Uh, and I'm I'm not uh, professing to be better than other people at that. Like I spend a, a sickening amount of time going on there and the problem is is that for me as an idea junkie that i am there's just enough interesting ideas that surface that keep me coming back and i get that little hit and then i'm chasing the dragon and i it like it it's just above the threshold of where i would stop but you know you just get that like oh hey that's a great paper i wouldn't have never found that otherwise um it's it's insidious but um you know, I'm, I'm fighting against that as best that I can. Uh, and I, you know, I'm trying to control that, that side of me, uh, not always successfully, but, <clears throat> but yeah, I think like environmental design, um, I think health actually is a huge part of, of giving you patience. Uh, and they've done lots of studies on this where, you know, you're, you're low, if you have low blood sugar or, you know, other, uh, you know, l- less sleep or any kind of physiological impairment from health, will completely short circuit your ability to concentrate, your ability to focus for a longer period of time. You're much faster to give up on a hard problem if you have low blood sugar. Um, <clears throat> so there's all these like health things that I think kind of go underappreciated that, that can make a huge difference in how you, it's the lens through which all of the information that's coming into your brain gets, gets inter- interpreted um, depending on your mood. And your mood is driven often by your by health and you know how you're feeling so um but yeah i think it's it's uh it's this this thing that is like you know we want to talk about you know just returns or oh this guy's just reading all the time or oh this guy's a great investor or gal but um you know i think the patience part of it is is so huge and i think it can really be you can really nurture that patience through a lot of different ways other than just like saying, Oh, I'm a, I'm a patient investor. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And I think the the tough part, I think that I've struggled with personally a bit is, I mean, either you take like the, so to say stoic way of, of just shunning everything. You don't, don't follow news and and so on, or you try to really, I mean, read news and, and um, I mean, act more or less normally but then uh, then uh, keep that long-term view and and have patience anyway how do you deal with that because it's i i think it's really it's a it's a tough question yeah i mean it's uh it's like any addiction where is abstinence the right answer or can you handle moderation right yeah like i'm just gonna do i'm just gonna have a little bit of the heroin right like that's not I, th- I don't know if that necessarily works. Uh, I don't, that might not be a very good analogy. I'm kind of joking, but, um, but yeah, it's really hard. I mean, you want to sort of, you feel like your job is as an investor is to sort of stay informed, but you know, if, if it is so much noise to, to actually capture the nugget of information, then I think, uh, that it, you may be at odds with, with success. Now, where I think, what can help is uh, Jim Chanos has this analogy that he calls like the information onion. And you look at the very core of the onion where there's the most truth. And that is the, what I would like the sec filings themselves. And that's really what the company has to tell you. Um, I would also put then like good books into that where there's a very high information density to the amount of content that you have to consume. 
Now, as we move outside of the onion to the next layer, that is more like the company's uh, press releases, the investor relations decks, um, like the conference calls. And those are all the things that the the management wants to tell you, not necessarily has to, but wants to. Um, Another layer, and that that then the equivalent might be for um, like, you know, reading a a good write up of of an investment idea, perhaps. Uh, And then the next layer out would be the like sell side research. And those are like, we're, you know, we want you to take this action. So here we're trying to give you some, some information to make you do what we want you to do. Um, and that may be more like a blog post or something uh, equivalent. And then finally on the outer layer, you get into like social media and rumors and, you know, just really just like sort of the candy. Uh, it feels good. It tastes good. Um, tweets, you know, things like that, but they're not, there's not much caloric density to it. There's no real meat on the bone there. Um, and so where are you spending your time and how, what's your diet of your information? Uh, and so the more that you can spend at that core of the onion, um, eating the most nutritious bites, I think the, I think that helps add to your patience a little bit and it helps you have a better understanding of the world as well, as opposed to interpreting the the bait like the very core information through someone else's lens, right? So if, if you're reading someone else's write up about it, but you didn't read the source material, you're getting all of their biases baked in on top of it. That's really a good uh, good way to look at things and how to prioritize your time. And within that core, like something that I was curious about when I read the book is uh, the pricing power and. And you mentioned a, a common quote, this thing that in the long run, everything is a toaster. So, and Mr. X gets this question of, uh, like, he asks, how can, you, how can you really know? How can you know if you have a differentiated product? So the question is, could you raise prices and not lose customers? I think maybe reality is a bit more complex than that, that uh, you could maybe raise prices and lose customers and still benefit on the bottom line. But uh, it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on, on like how much do you look at pricing power? Yeah, you're definitely right that I um, <clears throat> I sacrificed a ton of nuance in the name of simplicity for a lot of these concepts, um, and in in this instance, that's definitely true. Um, it, it's it it is a bit of a cliche to say that everything in the long run is a toaster. Um, but it, it, I do think that there is some truth to it for sure, um, that technology wants to do more with less all the time, right? And I think that typically has meant that the consumer is the one who benefits. Uh, and I think a lot of the technologies today will be an absolute boon for the average person and for the consumer. I don't know if they're going to be particularly helpful for the business owner. Uh, and and for the investor who is expecting to get returns from the 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 production of that business, um, it it could certainly lower the cost of a lot of the production for things like I mean just any changing anything from physical to digital creates uh, a a very large potential for cost savings. However, I think a lot of that just gets competed away and and given to the the consumer as surplus and. You know, every company then is the at the parade standing on their tippy toes and no one can see the parade any better at that point, right? To use Buffett's analogy. Uh, I think that's as true today as it was when when Buffett said it in 
talking about the textile mills in you know late 1970s. He said the same thing in 2000 when everyone was assessing the the dot com companies and thinking that all these companies are going to be so advantaged. And but it turns out you know capitalism doesn't let you get to keep all of that uh, value creation, right? You have to you have to share it with the consumer. Um, I think it's true for a lot of the businesses today, and I don't. Um, so maybe not everything is a toaster necessarily, uh, where it becomes undifferentiated, but that the return on the equity of the ownership of that asset uh, can only maybe get so high, and probably you know competition will erode it, and that will then be passed on to the consumer. And that's a great thing for all of us, you know, and it's a great thing for humanity, and we want all of our businesses to be working hard to. To, to delight us. It's not all good or all bad. It kind of depends on where, where you're sitting. Uh, if you're the owner of the business versus the, the consumer of the products. That's definitely true. Um, and as a value investor and everyone who is investing always wants to find, of course, find something that is really cheap compared to the price. That's, that's always the thing. Um, is there, could it be that you find undervalued or mispriced products or services like companies that have not raised prices in a long time and and you see that it's not efficient and they could now raise prices or lower like their cost to suppliers is that something you pay attention to uh i i personally don't spend a lot of time looking for that situation or thinking about that um i think just as a base case, like I don't think that that is that happens all that often. I mean, it's like it's the very rare, rare business like a C's candy that that Buffett can raise the price on December thirty first of every year, and there's just no real uh, um, no decline in demand for it. Um, I I mean, those kind of businesses are so exceptional, and I you know I think that often the pricing power is probably been flexed a fair amount already. Uh, and I like I just wouldn't feel very comfortable that I had some unique insight that one, that that pricing power did exist, two, that management would execute it, uh, and three, that it wouldn't um, actually lead to an erosion of demand, uh, you know, that where I thought that they had that pricing power and it turned out, nah, actually they didn't. They were just happened to be in a, in a right at that, that sort of marginal spot on the demand curve where anything higher price was going to pretty much flatline it. Right, right. And how do you handle like, like when you make your investment decisions, how how do you forecast and like work with models and so on? I do not put a whole lot of like, I'm very back of the envelope when it comes to that. Um, I will look, I will assume very, very, very modest kind of growth rates um and if if any at all um and then i you know i will assume typically reversion to the mean of of uh you know returns on equity or returns on capital more generally um and then after all of that I will still want a pretty healthy margin of safety. So you could you could see by putting all these layers of of conservatism in where you end up where very very few things ever pass the test. And most of the time everything I look at is looks too expensive to me um and seems like a 
Herculean assumption that that they're actually going to be able to achieve that growth rate based on today's price, the implied growth rate from today's price, um, which is why I, I spend a fair amount of my time twiddling my thumbs as well. So, uh, but yeah, I, I don't. There are very few businesses where I feel like I have the insight enough to justify paying a, a higher price that would um, where I think that it, it is still undervalued and. That could just be my own shortcoming, so I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily recommend what I do to anybody else. But yeah, you, uh, as you say, I mean, it's really up to each investor, and maybe for you, you would put it in the hard, too hard pile, but but someone else could have could have other insights. Well, my my thoughts are that like, <clears throat> you know, Buffett says that price is his due diligence, and what I think he means by that, if I can add a little nuance, would be that. When prices are really low for something, you don't really have to be that good of an analyst, right? Like it's like it's just it is so cheap that there's lots of ways to win here. Um, nothing amazing has to happen. Like basically, like as long as things don't just go totally to pot, like it it, it has a good chance of working out. Well, as the price moves up, and let's take that to a really far extreme. Like if it is, you know, if I can buy an amazing company for a dollar, like I don't really need to know that much about what's sitting on the balance sheet. I don't need to know that much about the the the, the customer's relationships with the company. Um, all of that stuff is baked into the price. So as I move up from that spectrum of $1 for it up to what is what the market is currently uh, selling it for, or even further past that, like with the assumptions of what the market cap would have to grow into for me to get a reasonable return, well, now I need to be smart about more and more things. Like I need to understand more and more about it. And I have to be right about all those things. So the, the degree of difficulty moves up with the price. Um, and so I, I tend to wait until the prices are such that like, I just don't have to be that good of an analyst to probably get the majority of this right. Um, and that's, I, I'd rather do that than try to think that I was smarter than everyone else. And um, like, solve these really hard problems, which uh, like there are lots of smart people who are solving those things all the time. Like, and I read about it and it's like, wow, that's a really good insight. I think you're probably right. Um, but I'm just not smart enough to get there myself without learning it from someone else. And by the time I learn it from someone else, it's, it's out of the bag and everyone knows it. Right. Um, so those unique insights where you really get paid that, that really idiosyncratic view that you're kind of the only one who thinks that way and you're right. Um, those are just really hard to do from a from a higher price and and the implied business results that a, a high price comes with. I think that, I mean, to to sum that up, I think I think in one way you need quite a lot of experience in order to, I mean, to 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 stay out because I mean you, I mean as humans we have a tendency to uh, we don't want to miss out, and um, I think that's more relevant than ever now with so much. So much change going on, and it seems like many investors just just want to jump on the next train. Yeah, and there are lots of really terrific businesses in the world today, and it's it is easy to let your price discipline slip and and imagine a growth rate which will bail out your current investment. Um, and it, it happens all the time, right? Like it's not like it happens often enough where it keeps people coming back to it. Um, but for me, I just don't want to depend upon some kind of right tail, like good outcome 
that makes my, the price that I paid, which was too high, uh, turn into an okay investment. Um, I just, that for me, that's, uh, I don't like rolling those dice and I'd much rather try to control the, the outcome through paying a, a very low price as opposed to being a really, really stellar analyst. I guess it comes down to risk aversion and, and also patience as we talked about before. You have been very patient to answer all our questions. We're very thankful for having some of your precious time. Uh, I have one last question for you. Uh, you previously said that you don't like to give book recommendations. I guess it's a bit like <laughs> uh, giving uh, stock tips for people who just want to know what to buy. But can you tell us if you have any example of a book that has given you the most value during the last uh, year? Yeah, I mean, the reason why I don't like giving uh, specific book recommendations very often is because I have read a book and thought, wow, this isn't that good. And then I've I've picked it up later and reread it. And I was like, how did I miss how good this was? What was I... Who was I at the time when I read this that I was so dumb to not recognize how good this is? It's like that that parable about like no man crosses the the same river twice because it's not the same man and it's not the same river. Um, and so to for me to give someone a book recommendation, then like I don't know where they are in their kind of knowledge journey. I don't know the other books which provide the context, the structural context to support that new wrinkle of the of what this new book is saying uh i don't know if it's going to resonate at all so that's that's why i don't particularly like giving book recommendations um however i will say since you asked for a specific one um there's this uh a book that came out a couple months ago by adam mead that's called the complete financial history of berkshire hathaway and i mean and this thing is a it's a monster book like doorstop you know it's it's four inches thick but what it is, is it, it, it takes Berkshire's entire financial history and it breaks it down year by year. And it actually starts before Buffett. It goes back into the old like textile days in the like late 1800s, the, the original companies that then came together to form Berkshire Hathaway. <clears throat> but it, obviously, it gets much more interesting when Warren gets involved. Um, but the, it goes through every single acquisition, every single like the results of the insurance companies every single year. All the the MSR, the manufacturing service retail businesses that are inside of Berkshire each year, all the deal structure, like what did they pay for Mid American? What did they pay for, you know, uh, Scott Fetzer? Um, all these different, and each year breaking down, and then how did that thing go on to do that next year? And like, what were the returns? And um, it's just the amount of work that it took to put that all together was such a Herculean task. Like, so I'm very thankful to Adam for having done that. Cause that's the book I would have wanted, but I never would want to do it myself. Right. <laughs> um, and now here's how you take it, take this and, and put it over the top. Uh, take this book and read up until 1994. And then in 1994, the annual shareholders meetings for Berkshire are available in both video and podcast format. Take the read 1994 and then listen to the 1994 AGM and then read 1995 and listen to the 1995 AGM and work your way up until today, actually, because um, the book runs all the way up through uh, basically like 2020. Um, but to have all of the numbers given to you in a really easy to digest format and, and you know, collated for you and uh, all the deals and then to have Warren and Charlie giving you real time 
uh, analysis and color of what they were thinking at that time. And you could see the deals that they made. And then you see the like what they were worried about. And then you see the deal that they made in another year or two. It is an absolute treasure trove of clear thinking and how two of the two guys that who are probably two of the best to ever do this, like just dissecting the game footage uh, in in real time effectively, and especially because you already know how it's going to turn out. Um, just an absolute amazing exercise, uh, and I, I couldn't recommend it enough. Like it's it, if you could go through that, it's better than probably any MBA that you could get. It's probably better than any finance class you could ever take. Uh, it's it's. Uh, it's it's one of those things like that. I if I was smart, I would just do this every year and and do almost nothing else and just keep learning from this. But I don't know if I'm that smart. That's a really good advice, and uh, I can also recommend the the podcast that you did in Five Good Questions. It was really good. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast, Jake Taylor. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure, and uh, you guys asked terrific questions. Thanks so much, Jake. Take care. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by RedEye. You can follow us on Twitter at IB underscore RedEye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve the podcast, we really appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. For the editing of this podcast, we thank Jon Hintze, and for the graphic design, Jesper Viking. I'm your host, Eddie Palmgren, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.